Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. Here we are. And that is where you will find us. Here? Here. Because this is where we are? Yes. Have you been behaving yourself lately? Um, I think because of life circumstances, I haven't had much of a choice but to behave myself mostly. Has our friend here heard the joke that you shared earlier, which I enjoyed so much? Maybe. Is that the one about... Um, why I married you? Why I married you? You mean because of your looks? No. <laughs> <laughs> but just not the looks you've been giving me lately? <laughs> yeah, that one. Uh... No, the one about um, your, your error at work. Right? And I was coaching you. And I told you to embrace your mistakes. Oh, and then I gave you a hug. And then you gave me a hug. Yeah. Yeah, but that wasn't the one either? No, that wasn't the one. Well, I don't even know what joke you're talking about now. It's okay. Hi. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Phil. This is Travis. Hi, everyone. How do you introduce yourself, Travis? Um, hmm, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. Besides, I'm Travis. All right. Um, I'm the virtual production manager at CCAR. That's how I know these. What folks. the heck's a virtual production manager? I um, <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't say it that way, should I? You I should know. I, I should know. I run the trainings, but I'm in every one, and I make sure that they work. Yes, you do. That's the most simple way to put it. I yes, would say. you do. You enable a productive online experience. Enable and encourage. I would say too. There you go. And that comes from the corporate America. So far, so good. Too. The corporate America. <laughs> You're a corporate I America. I am the corporate. You represent no longer. corporate America. No longer. <laughs> so you're just the virtual production manager. How else would you describe yourself? I'm a lot of things. Um, I'm a writer, poet, uh, musician. Uh, I play guitar. I'm a vocalist in a metal band. Um, I probably wouldn't listen to that. Probably not. It's okay. <laughs> it's not for everyone. Um boyfriend, I'm a son, I'm a brother, grandson. I think that's a pretty good definition. Yeah, but the, you left out one of the most strange things of all. What's that? New York Rangers fan? Oh, huge New York Rangers <laughs> fan. Well, I, I guess I, um, I'm so intense about being a Rangers and hockey fan that people are like, whoa, hang on a second. Mm -hmm. Seriously, I don't miss a game. Got a game tonight at 7, I'm ready to go. Got my fantasy team. I'm just, uh, I'm a big hockey fan. I love it. So what do you mean you're ready to go? I'm ready to go. I got What's my lineup set. So, oh, for your fantasy mm -hmm. team? Okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every day. It's a commitment. I know. It's How often do you get to see a game in person? I went for my birthday, actually. My girlfriend got us tickets to Madison Square Garden. We were like 12 rows from the glass. It was, I love it so much that when I walked into that building, I got emotional. I was like, oh my God, I'm here. This is incredible. And they um, they came out and they were awful. Then the second period came and they scored like five unanswered goals and won the game. And I was I got tired of cheering. I lost my voice. It was <laughs> it was an awesome time. It was really really cool. I don't know if you've ever been to Madison Square Garden, but it's just a magical sort of place. 
world's most famous arena. I know, I can't. I've walked by it. I don't know if I've been in it, but then again, I might. my recall might not be good, too. I could have been heavily stoned or drunk at the time and gone. It's possible. I mean, they, they, <laughs> with all the concerts and things that come through there, I'm sure oh, yeah. you weren't the only one. That's okay. But I do want to get there. I think I went to a Knicks game. Yeah. Many, many years ago, I went to a Knicks game there. I'm pretty intrigued by the poet piece. Do you have any uh, snippets you could share? I have about a hundred, more than a hundred. I have hundreds on my phone. Um, is that what you want? You want me to read one to you? Or do you maybe, want to maybe at the end. We should yeah, hear a poem at I, the end. I'd have to find the, the right one. I, um, poetry was really kind of like my pathway. Um, I define my recovery as mental health recovery because I never experienced substance use disorder or any, any sort of thing like that. Um, it was more like I was addicted to my own thoughts, mm-hmm. right? And I learned in therapy to really put my creativity above everything in my life so I can sort of manage my feelings in a way that feels productive and I can feel good about. Um, and I, I can't tell you how huge that has been for me in my adult life, just having a way to manage all the feelings that I have coming through me at, at all times, really. I'm an intense person, and I can't help that. How do you... I've never heard that. You said something I've never heard. Addicted to my own thoughts. Yep. So can you describe that a little more? Well, I think it's something I could never really control. I kind of... I know you're probably going to ask about little Travis, but this is kind of <laughs> where it started. I remember being little, and my mom was pregnant with my sister. I was about four about four years old, and she worked second shift at Sam's Club as a cashier, make money, right? And she wouldn't get home till like 9, 10 o'clock, and I would sit in the window and wait and wait and wait and say, oh, my God, what if my mom doesn't come home? Like wow. I legit, legitimately had like a fear. And I sort of carried that through my life. Like it was everything. It was, it was school. It was work. It was relationships. And, you know, that really took a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I say addicted to my own thoughts because I couldn't help it. Like I was almost like powerless to it. Whereas now with a thing like poetry or even my music, I can control that energy in a way that means something positive to me. Right. By the way, I completely get what you're saying because before I had found my faith, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And I can fall back into that pattern of thinking really easily right I mean it's really when you think about it that anxiety addiction my thoughts I'll keep using that um that's fear that's all fear whereas my poetry really is just love Hmm. it's the opposite end Mm -hmm. of the spectrum it's my care for myself and my thoughts and the amazing thing about writing is it's like painting you know with words and you start to uncover your thoughts and like what real deeper feelings without even really trying too hard. But that takes practice. Have you ever explored The Course in Miracles? No, I don't know what that is. So it it was part of our journey, but, um, you know, this book was written, and some would say it was written by or channeled 
by the writer from Jesus. But the basic premise is you can't experience love and fear in the same moment. And so beyond the book or whether I believe in the book, I do believe in that thought. And so replacing fear with love with what you're saying with your poetry is is love in the moments of fear, being able to replace it makes perfect sense to me. So you identify with this addicted to your thought, to my thoughts. I don't. So I'm I'm really curious. I want to hear more about what that feels like. Could you describe it? Um, I'm I'm, I'm very curious. It's like a... Hmm. I don't even know. It's, It's just like a need that has to be... It's my attempt to understand every little thing that's going on. And until I understand it, it's just going to continue. Do you have an example? Um, like you talked about, you sitting in the in the window waiting for your mom. Yeah, and so what, I know. So would the thought be? Would the thought be that she's not going to come home? That you would keep playing over and over? Yeah, in your I head? would play. My therapist tells me stop making movies in your head. I was or, making I mean, movies in my head. You tell yourself, and your brain doesn't know the difference. So I would, my, my emotions would react and my nervous system would react to this wow. moment my little child Trav was experiencing. And I took it through life, mm-hmm. essentially. I grew up, you know, pretty anxious and I didn't know how to express it. It wasn't like something we did either in our house. Like, I had a great relationship with both my parents, but we didn't talk about, you know, mental health or what any of that meant. It was kind of just like, okay, you'll be, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much. I mean, uh, I'm trying to think of like another like. Do you have an example, Sandy? Yeah. Oh well, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I can give you an example. The first time I, I made a deliberate choice not to do it. Mm-hmm. I was just sharing this story. I was kind of cheating on the podcast, and I was on a different podcast. <laughs> Oh no! It's all right. You feel like you were cheating. I don't feel like you were it was cheating. An, it was in it was in Ireland anyway. But I was just sharing the first time that I made a conscious effort to stop that cycle of thinking was when I was pregnant with our with my oldest child, Joshua, um, because I was manufacturing everything that could possibly be going wrong inside my body, and just losing it and I made a decision that I was going to pray for the baby every morning and every night and then let it go didn't happen like that and there were seasons where it was harder than others but it was the first time I really gave it a go Mm -hmm. to give those worry anxious thoughts over to a higher power um because I didn't think I could actually survive nine months with the intensity of everything that could go wrong. But, it's maddening. Yeah. And I can remember being eight years old, lying in my bed at night, going crazy about, you know, my parents, sibling relationships, the kids at school, like just. Well, and until you make that conscious decision, it's just going to continue. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can compare that to drug addiction in the same, in the same way until... You can take that step, whatever that means to you, of course, in your journey, but it's nothing changes if nothing changes, right? Well, and- I was thinking when you're talking about that, when we first met, my nickname for you was... Controllerella. 
the left yeah. towards Travis. Well, I'm, I'm going to like that. him at the end of this hour, no matter <laughs> oh, what. But you... Controllerello, right? Yeah. And, but that, you just highlighted that because you were trying to... And we would talk about it at length about trying to control our environment and how that is maddening to try mm-hmm. to do that, to use your word. It's a defense mechanism, really, mm-hmm. when you think about it. It's a coping mechanism, mm-hmm. similar to substance use. Yeah. You know, it's, it's your responding to trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and Whatever that is. Mm-hmm. And, I, and to that point, um, wow, that was, I feel like we're in therapy and happening. <laughs> that I think this really started for me around the time that I was bullied in elementary mm-hmm. school. Like, I think that's when it really took off because there was so much happening to me in the course of a day that I couldn't control. Yeah, I mean, and that makes total sense. And I could, I mean, the, the one with my mom, that's just like a minor one. I think I was a little just nervous by nature. I didn't really have a ton of trauma in my childhood that I remember, at least. So I, I had great parents. But as I got older and I didn't nurture that sort of love in my life, you know, I start choosing the wrong relationships and the wrong jobs. And then what do I do? I default to that it being addicted to my thoughts. And how am I going to how am I going to get through this? What if this happens? What if that happens? The other thing. And there was a lot of turmoil for for. The better part of my twenties, because mm-hmm. I, I was nurturing fear instead of love. So what was the what was the turmoil? Um, well, it really started twenty six, twenty seven. I'm thirty two now. I just had a really bad year. Um, I lost my grandfather. I was working a sales job that was ruining my life. It was just so stressful. Um, and I was in an abusive relationship. I was being abused uh, physically, emotionally. And it just something just sort of triggered in me. And I just went downhill. I mean, it's, it's hard to explain the actual path there because you're powerless to it, right? Just like you'd be powerless to your drug use. I try to make that comparison for mm-hmm. you, Phil, so I can no, bring you along this journey. I'm following. I'm and it was, you know, that negative self-talk, the anxiety. Um, and you can only do that so long before you crack, right? And I remember the moment, it was, it was probably like six, seven months of me getting up every morning and dry heaving from the nerves, right, from the anxiety. Mm-hmm. And something had happened. Some, like one of my friend's girlfriends said she didn't like me or something told my friend and but it broke me in that moment and I was laying on the kitchen floor just like crying and my mom was there and God bless her she said you know we're gonna find you help and I you know that was my moment where I surrendered mm-hmm. and we talk about love and surrender and mm-hmm. fear and wanting to control that was my moment where it all started to sort of go uphill for me so what did what form did help take it was therapy at first. Yeah. Because I had never really learned how to take care of myself. Oh. You know, I never, I was in this fear mentality for forever. I don't know why, but that's where I was, right? So I had to learn to, you know, associate my, peop- my, my life with 
good loving people who care about me, not people who are gonna, you know, cheat on me and abuse me and take jobs that I know are gonna feel good to me and aren't gonna ruin my life. Like the basics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I beat myself up for not knowing this too. This was part of the journey too. Mm-hmm. Um so I it was just it was therapy and, and learning relearning myself and my own programming. And that takes years. I agree. That takes I, years. I've always said, late, not always, but lately I've been saying it a lot, that the journey of recovery is a journey of self-awareness. 100%. It's a, it's a journey inward. And as you dive inward, you learn more and more and more. It, it never yeah. ends. That's why the metaphor of peeling the onion Plus, I cry every time I peel another layer. But, like, I'll be as honest with all of you as I am with myself on any given day. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean I've, I even have an awareness, right, of, of those layers of things. Well, it's hard. It's, it's hard because we have so much in our life. I mean, our jobs, our hobbies, the people we love, you know, but you have to find that real time to self reflect, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. I mean, but that's why I've identified so much with what CCAR does. I just, you know, I, I call it my own mental health recovery. And mm-hmm. it's, I apply all of our principles and everything we teach in our trainings to my own life. And it's been rewarding, mm-hmm. to say the least. Well, we'll get into that. Travis, when did you, did you think you thought differently than other people as a kid? Do you remember, like, you know, your earliest memory? Or were you just, because well, you, know, cause you I always go back and think about my childhood and again, this is just recent after 34 years of recovery, I've discovered that I was well cared for as a child, but I'm not, uh, I'm wrestling with the, the idea of how well loved I was. And I don't know that I was well loved in the sense of like, being held, and I use your example a lot, Sandy, of the Loving's Arm Ministry, and I think about how often the kids were in our arms all the time, just holding them, telling our kids we, we love them, demonstrating that, and we've talked about maybe you and I haven't always demonstrated it between us the way our kids would have wanted, mm-hmm. but I think our kids know they're well-loved, whether they feel that will probably be up to them. Um, but we did the best we we can. We do the best we can with what we're given. So and I and I thought because I was thinking a certain way as a kid that no one else thought that way. I felt and, that way too. And then I realized when I like got into the rooms of recovery that mostly everyone thought the same way I did. I just had no idea because we didn't talk about it. Yeah, no, I I can definitely relate to that. I I, I knew I thought more than mm-hmm. people put it that way right um and i don't mean that in a condescending way like no, people no. are stupid i just have a lot going on in here i still do to this day um and my parents are amazing people i love both of my parents right. and even my dad and i have had differences as adults but you know like i understand that i was loved and they did the best they could with what they had right mm-hmm. but i don't feel like i was always put in loving situations i i suppose i was I was a gifted wrestler growing up. I was very good. I won the state championship in 2004, and that was our life. But as I got into high school and I started to, you know, I got a girlfriend, and 
started playing guitar and getting involved in art and my life started changing. But no one in my life, my parents, my wrestling coach, no one was having it. Like, no one cared what I thought Mm -hmm. about what I, like, you were going to do this. We even had an instance at a wrestling tournament. I was 16. I remember this like it was yesterday. And my girlfriend came to watch me. I ended up losing to someone who I shouldn't have lost to, I guess. I don't know. Bad day. Whatever. And my coach reamed me out and my girlfriend out. And in that moment, that taught me that what I said, what I think, and what I say does not matter. And it was reinforced again by my parents when they made me go work on my cousin's fishing boat in the summertime, even though I wanted to stay home with my friends. And I know that they did it in good faith. They wanted me to have money to buy a car when I turned sick. It was all good, but it didn't matter what I thought I had to go. So again, it was reinforced that what I think doesn't matter. Right. And again, I carried that into relationships. What I thought didn't matter mm-hmm. at all. I can tell you that's how I get in an abusive relationship to begin with. So it was really, it was really hard. That was probably the hardest bit. I had to read. Oh, I'm that. so feeling Travis. Oh, so I grew up in a house where I wasn't allowed to have an opinion. Mm. Not at all. Not even over the most simplest thing or the biggest things. And so there was never. It was always considered, don't talk back to your mother. Just have a different point of view. And then when I got old enough to move out, uh, suddenly, one day, um, because I was making a choice to dig in my heels and do what opposite of what they would have wanted, mm-hmm. I just spent the next 10 years trying to convince my parents how wrong as human beings they were, right? Like, get some little... I was also drinking, but like Talk it's about a little uphill battle. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just I totally get that 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 I had no voice, and so conversely, the whole CCAR and the recovery coaching approach of treating humans as resources right. in their own life and own journey is refreshing. Well, and you can imagine what it was was like you know I carried that mentality into relationships, and I did the work. And found C-Car, just to be able to be given the freedom to like make pretty much whatever decision I want for the most part, that I'm the, the expert of my own experience, that was like walking through the gates of heaven, mm-hmm. <laughs> essentially, because I didn't live that life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I allowed it to be that way, and I give you props for standing up to your parents. That was pretty cool of you, Sandy. <laughs> well, it's hard to do that. It takes some bravery, right? Yeah. I wasn't making wise decisions at well, the time, but I but made. Sometimes we have at to least I finally made a decision that I wasn't going to live. I don't think I was really well heard either. That could also be a, a factor of the generation I grew up into that kids were to be seen and not heard. I mean, that was a mentality that was common. Right. Um, when I think of our kids and our parenting style is actually we probably listen to our kids more than they want us to listen to them (laughs) because we ask them what do you think about this and what might be something we're doing and they say they don't want to be part of it you know but one of the most rewarding things is is what I hear is when Mary comes in and she comes home from work and she sees Sandy and she goes, Mom! And I know they're having a, a heartfelt conversation because she doesn't agree or 
you're doing something to irritate yeah. her. Well, the funniest thing was getting time with her at senior in high school is not frequent. And mm-hmm. she spent some time with me watching TV last week. And she got up. She's like, I'm going to, going to my room now. And I said, I thought we were having Mom and Mary time. She goes, we were, but it's over. Like, so it's funny, right, if I don't take it as her, you know. But thank God she is not absorbed in my feelings so much that she would do something different in that moment. Right. She's confident. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's important. I, and again, I like I wasn't confident in myself. You know, I wasn't confident to even make those decisions. Well, you're, you're somewhat like... A, a renaissance man is how I see you. Really? No, that you you have multi-talents, multi-skill, um, artistic in many ways, and I appreciate that in you very much. And then I see you as like, you just, where were you a wrestler? Where'd you grow up? I grew, up, I grew up in Ellington, where I live now. It's funny, I spent my whole 20s trying to get away, and I ended up moving back. Um, so that's where you were the state champion? Uh, technically, Summers because I okay. didn't have a team. And um, um, where's the, what's the Carolina connection? Was that where the fishing boat was? Yes. Oh. So that's my dad, my my grandmother on my dad's side. She was born and raised down there. Yeah. So when she met my grandfather when he was in the Marine Corps at Paris Island, she moved up here mm-hmm. and had my dad, and that's the connection. So yeah. you had to for the summer. You had to go work in a fishing boat in Carolina. Phil. Oh my gosh! It's what a fate worse than death. I, I mean, think it's a fate worse <laughs> than death myself. I oh liked fishing. God. Here's the, I had to do it two years. The first year was okay because I had never done anything like that, and I was in eighth grade. I wasn't really at the point where I was just hanging out with girlfriends and mm-hmm. doing all that in the summer. The following year, you know, I fell in love for the first time. And the whole thing there so like I was you know I wanted to stay home um but up Phil my first day on that boat I will never forget this <laughs> I you know I was excited to be there excited to work for the first time love fishing I still enjoy fishing to right. this day I wish I got to go more than I do mm-hmm. but I got seasick and if you've ever been seasick yes it, it doesn't stop until you get to dry land And I remember sitting there with my head in the trash can going, how am I going to do this all summer long? I did it. After Mm -hmm. that, I was fine. You got your sea legs. Yeah, hardest job I've had to this day was that job. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. physically, for sure. Mm -hmm. I say that when I was bus girl at a a very packed seaside restaurant Mm -hmm. in Rhode Island. So, Did, did Did you want to be a wrestler? Or was that something? Um, well, I think it started, and I don't know. I'd have to confirm this with my dad, but the kids on the street were a little bit bigger than me, and I was getting beat up a little. Oh. And coming home, like, why aren't they nice to me? And my mm-hmm. dad said, well, you know, maybe we could do karate or, or wrestling. Or I wasn't interested in basketball. I've never been interested in basketball. I watched mm-hmm. March Madness. That's it. Mm-hmm. But um, we tried wrestling. I remember he brought me to a tournament. To watch, I think his friend's son was doing it. You know, do you like this? I said, sure, let's give it a whirl. And I loved it. I loved it. But it got to a point around when I was good enough to win the state championship where it felt like I wasn't doing it for me anymore. 
I remember standing on top of that podium with my bracket and my state championship t-shirt and feeling nothing. Really? Yep. And feeling nothing. How sad. I'm still, well, I, you know, I've made peace with that. Yeah, you know, no, I just think, uh, yeah. It was, it was unbelievable and I'm proud of it. I think I was still proud. I just wasn't like, it's hard to put yourself in that moment and remember exactly how you, right. how, like what was going through your mind, but that was the point really where I was considering other things. Did you win easily or did you have a tussle? Oh, in overtime? in overtime with yeah. it a throw, which was crazy. You never see that in folk-style wrestling. It was, a, it was a great move. It was a great move. It was like the end of the Karate Kid. Yeah, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, and my parents were proud, too. I mean, they worked hard to give me the tournaments every weekend, and I trained with Northeast Elite Wrestling, which was like the best place you could go to up here. And, yeah. You know, they invested a lot, so I, could, I can understand their resistance to that, and my coach, too. Well, no I think we saw that, too, because our son was playing soccer at an elite level. But one of the probably the greatest things was when he joined this um, premier team, the coach pulled a kid that he knew the family of, so he knew he could do this in front of everybody. And he said, if you feel like the investment you are making in your son is going to turn into a four-year free ride through college, you know, you, you might as well leave right now. And I I think that uh, we saw so many young young men quit the, their sport that they loved because it just it was pushed so hard and took yeah. up all of their life, and they missed so many other things they might have wanted to check well, out. That's what it was. I mean, and I don't... I still, I'll watch wrestling, the Olympics. I watch the NCAA championships. It's still, I love hockey, but wrestling will always be my, my first love. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. I really do love it. I wanted to coach, but it just. Still can. It's one of those sports, though, where it's not like I can go to Madison Square Garden and watch a wrestling tournament right. or match. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think I was starting to see that early. Like, yeah, I might be good at this, but like, what am I going to do? And well, that was one of many reasons, but... Yeah. Well, the, the part I hear is you lost the joy. It was no longer fun. Yep, and it wasn't. I think we, me in particular, and you've always backed me up, is we just told our kids, if it, even with Matthew now in college, if it's still fun, okay. Well, we're not, we don't have any expectations that you play or don't play. It's for you. Mm-hmm. So... That's what athletics are about. It's about um, staying fit, enjoying your youth, having fun in what you're doing, and learning a lot about yourself and about teammates and about sports in general. Oh, absolutely. Winning is really secondary, but it's primary in most cultures throughout the United States. All All the athletic cultures, winning is number one. And the great John Wooden said it wasn't, it wasn't about winning. It was about performing your best. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I knew without even really understanding it as a young 14-year-old that just I wasn't enjoying it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just wasn't. I didn't have the, the same love that I once did for it. And that's okay. But, yeah. I understand, again, I understand my parents' reluctance because you don't want 
as a parent, your child to regret things, right? Mm-hmm. They saw my talent. They saw what I could do. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think I just wish things went down a little bit differently. So I felt like I'd had a voice at the time. Well, you- Matthew was considering playing. And one of the questions that he appreciated me asking was, um, do you know, this is, you will be 20 only once in your life. So if you decide not to play, it's not like you can return to it next year. Right. And he said, yeah, that's a good point. So you only have that, it's a limited time frame too, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like when you're 14, oh, I give it up for a few years and right. pick up wrestling again. It's not like golf. <laughs> I can pick up pick golf. Pick it up when you're 80. No, I'm not a golfer. <laughs> I know, but yeah, you, can, for you sure. can pick up golf anytime, you know. So let me ask you, after all that happened, is that did you feel like your addiction to thoughts took off after that? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely, because then I, without even like knowing I was doing it, was trying to make sense of how the heck am I going to get through the next two, three years of high school, mm-hmm. still keeping my parents happy, but also do the things I love. So it created a toxic environment in my head. And that same year, my parents got divorced. Oh, wow. So there was a lot going on in my head, and I remember my mom saying, you should go to therapy and doing the classic 16-year-old. No, I'm good, Mom. Yeah. And yeah. I wish I did I'm now. good. I always say I'm what do good. You, what, at that age, what did you love to do? Uh, guitar. I loved playing guitar, and I loved playing music. And I, I still will never forget the feeling I had the first time I played with a band. I could not stop smiling. I could I like had to turn around so my friends wouldn't judge me for being so happy. <laughs> I'm <laughs> serious, terrible. and um, that that was that was it. I wanted. I, so I was had, that band experience like just together, or were you in front of a group, or? Well, it started just me and learning on my own. How yeah. To do this, and my best friend Tyler, who lived across the street. Shout out Tyler if you're watching this. Mm-hmm. Um, he played guitar too, and his stepdad had like a little studio, yeah. so we were able to record ourselves, and you know, which is a great way to get better. By the way, I don't know if you, what is it like when you hear your voice on on? Uh, I don't listen. It, we don't listen. It's hard. It's <laughs> it, it's hard. It's the same with instruments too. It's yeah. a, it's kind of like nails on a chalkboard. But we um, we then then we decided, oh, let's go get a bass player and a drummer, and that was the dawn of my music career. 2006 and from then until about 26 or 27 that's what I wanted to do with my life I wanted to be in a band and I wanted to be a professional musician now when you are playing music you're probably just thinking about the music right well it depends I mean if I'm if I'm playing as a guitar player yes if I'm vocalists and it's hilarious because people say I'm a metal vocalist so they don't know what I'm saying anyway but I am thinking about the because I pour my soul into those words. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking about the anxious thoughts because it. I feel like I picked up alcohol when I was 17 mm-hmm. and it got rid of that obsessive thinking and you found a creative outlet. Um, I found a creative outlet, but I was also getting in my 20s. It was college age. I was going to Central and there was a lot of drinking going on. There was a lot there. of drug use and all that. So... As healthy as it was, it was almost like they were canceling each other out, right? Because mm-hmm. there was so much good and there was so much bad. Granted, it made me a better musician, but it was a interesting time in my life. We'll just put it 
that what way. What made you a better musician? Doing it for so long. Playing. Playing oh. the music. Mm-hmm. I thought you were going to say uh, alcohol and drugs oh, made you a better musician. I thought it did. <laughs> I, I, thought I, I can tell you right now. Most I thought, people did. I used to like, you know, uh, eat a few drinks before a set would get the nerves, especially when I started, which mm-hmm. is nice. But no, it was a lot of, I was serious about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's, that's what I wanted to do. And I was lucky enough to travel and go around the country and play shows all over the place. And I, um, what was the name of your band? I was in a band called Burn Lexington. Burn? Burn Lexington. Lexington, like in Kentucky? Yeah. I don't know. Well, that's weird. I had, it's weird. It's okay. But, uh, <laughs> I was in another band called The Words We Use. That's who I traveled with. Um, and then another band called Painted Life, which is my proud baby. Mm-hmm. Um, that was later. That was, I was just about graduating college at that point. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I had to face the music. I didn't, I didn't have, I wasn't making any money playing music. And I was finishing up with a business degree and my parents are looking at me like, so what are you going to do with that $40,000 degree? Mm-hmm. And I went out and took my first job I could find as a liquor distributor salesman. And that was the start of my spiral <laughs> right there because, again, I wasn't looking out for myself. I was looking out for what other people maybe expected of me, you know? And it was just, for lack of a better term, kind of miserable. What's a liquor distributor? Liquor, what did you say? Liquor uh, distributor. Liquor distributor. I was a salesman, so I was, you hear, account executive, sales representative. <laughs> There's They have a lot of different names for this, but... My job basically was to go, they hired me because I was, I worked in restaurants my whole adult life. So I would go restaurants and bars around the shoreline and sell them what they needed. Wow. And I mean, you guys know me well enough. I, I, I liked the people part of it. Mm -hmm. I I loved, I still have relationships and friendships from that job Mm -hmm. and I miss that about it, but the sales, aggressive sales tactics. Did you do well? So much. I did okay. Yeah. I cared more about relationships than, than selling anything, mm-hmm. you know, which helped me as a salesman at some times, but when it came to be, you know, right. the 30th of the month and, you know, you still had to hit some numbers, it became really tough for me. Um, so, you know, and that's around that time is when I got into the abusive relationship and then I actually had some substance use going on there, which really, again, started the spiral led to the beginning of our story where my mom helped me get therapy. So um, men being the victim of physical abuse in relationships with women is more common than people think, it. and it's not talked about a lot. I don't know if you care to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I totally get it because men are generally like bigger and stronger, and you know, you're supposed to be the man, right? But you're a wrestler, too. Yeah, you could... Right. Hurt? And big, heavy metal. Really hurt and somebody if you wanted to. I remember taking the hit and being uh, like, I could end this really quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, which is not, which is a terrible thought. Right. right. You know, especially when you're dealing with a 5-2 <laughs> girl, right? You know, it's it's terrible. But, so I did what I thought I had to do and I buried it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's... I just, you know, if, if you're a man and you're listening to this, you know, it's, it's okay to talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's really what I want to say. And I wish I did it sooner because you find out just like in, 
addiction recovery or whatever mental health thing you're going through, there's people out there that are going to relate. And there's mm-hmm. people out there that are going to understand. And if they don't and they're new to it, maybe it's their survival guide. You know, I, I, I just, I wish I had done it sooner, but... Well, you exercised restraint, which you're, had to. You, which you're called to do, so... I had to do what I had to do. How else you do? How else you deal with that? And I mean, from our vantage point, with the maturity that we have, like the fact you figured all this out by age thirty-two is incredibly wonderful. Mm-hmm. Like, I know it feels like it was a long time, but I know so many people still middle-aged, still caught in the swirl of whatever particular. Mm-hmm. Well, you can be addicted to that too. It's like mm-hmm. a negative. Mm-hmm. Tension, mm-hmm. it's codependency, is what it is. Yeah, but you get it's like that dopamine hit from just mm-hmm. a because the abusive relationships it's not just abuse, there's there's building you up and love bombing and then devaluing, mm-hmm. so it keeps you in this yep. roller coaster of emotions where you can't really move, you can't, you're paralyzed, and it's it's very, very difficult. To get I, out of. I was only hit once. But it was at the end of that relationship. And there was a part of me that thought, he must love me so much to have hit me in anger that I moved on without him, right? Like there was that sick It's weird how thinking. you internalize it that way, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So therapy, your path of recovery. Talk mm-hmm. about your pathway or pathways <laughs> of recovery. And well, how do you describe that? I I went I didn't really know what to expect. I thought therapy was for crazy people. Mm-hmm. Right? Like a lot of people have never been to therapy like that. Mm-hmm. Um immediately was blown away by like how friendly this woman was and like how great of a listener she was. Of course it's her job. Mm-hmm. Um and it felt great at first just to unload all this baggage somewhere on mm-hmm. someone who didn't really have any ties to it, mm-hmm. you know, emotionally. Because, like, as supportive as my mother was, and she helped get me there, she was so emotionally invested in protecting me that she couldn't really objectively think of ways to help me get out of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love you, Mom, but mm-hmm. sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it's hard to, like, really get into specifics. I guess just the more comfortable I got with it, and she was a great coach, by the way. She was able to ask me those good questions and, like, really lean on my experience. Not what other people call my experience, what I thought of it. Mm-hmm. And how we were going to do it. Start doing things that make you feel good, right? So I started, the big one was, well, you've been at this job for two years. You're miserable. But you spent the ten years before that playing music and traveling and do that, and you don't do it anymore. So you have this giant hole in your life. So that got me start writing again. I didn't have a band at the time, so I started writing poetry, which obviously stuck, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It was just, it was kind of like one thing at a time. I, I started to love, and we ask in trainings, can we love ourselves? But I think love's an active term. So I started, act, at least, at the very least, doing things actively towards loving myself. So got out of that relationship. Stopped hanging out with a group of friends that did cocaine every weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, just like these little things until, you know, then you just start looking in the mirror and saying, it's not so bad. I kind of like 
this person. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, geez, that was 2000, no, 2017, 2016, 2017, something like that. And um, it was, when I would say I was healed, it was three years, four years of that probably. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it takes time. It's real work. And it's not just in the sessions. I compare it to, like, when I practice with my band, we want you to come to band practice ready with things to show. Mm-hmm. You don't just show up and jam because nothing will ever get done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had to I had to buy in that process, mm-hmm. I suppose. And that's what worked for me. And I got really lucky with my first therapist, by the way. Yeah. Because I know people struggle for years just to find the right person. I believe wholeheartedly that if it is not a connection, change. It's okay to change. Don't rule it out. Yeah. Tell me the story of how you found C-Car. Cause, uh. <laughs> uh, well, there's t- there's two versions to this story. <laughs> the first one was my friend Lila, who I worked with since 2008, worked for CCAR. Mm-hmm. And I'll jump back a little bit. So I was just really getting comfortable with telling my story. And I was really active in gaming communities and on Twitch, which is a big streaming platform i don't know if you guys are familiar oh yeah we have oh yeah we have sons yeah yeah you told me about that and um i thought to myself like what if i got on there in these gaming communities where people struggle with all sorts of mental health things and just use my story to support and interview friends and it was going great so lila came up to me at work one day and said they're hiring here and i think you would crush it (laughs) <laughs> and I said, really? And I looked at the job posting and I said, I'm not qualified for this. But I said, you know, something told me to apply anyway. And I did, and I got an interview. And I guess here we are, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Phil asked me the most interesting interview question I've ever heard. How do you want to be remembered? And I don't remember how I answered it. but <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> I've never been that. asked that, but I don't think anyone. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that. Hmm. Right. How do you want to be remembered? Um, as someone who told their story to help other people. and I think becoming a coach is a big thing now. I, I like to be remembered as a coach, someone who listened, mm-hmm. you know, someone who treated others like they were the expert of their own experience. And again, this is just why I identify so much with mm-hmm. what we do here. Well, you, you know? came in like in the midst of a pandemic. That, that too. And we were just restructuring and relaunching our whole digital virtual world. And we were going to deliver all these trainings. And what was what's your experience been like? It's been great. I mean, I really just love the people. I mean, it's kind of a nightmare as far as like remembering everything because now they all just kind of blur together. <laughs> Stacey will ask me about, you know, some participant or one of my coworkers, and I never know. I have to always go in the spreadsheet. Yeah. Um, it's been wonderful and inspiring, and to see the light go off in people's eyes, light bulb, and just to be a part of that energy every day mm-hmm. is so cool. And I don't think it really exists quite in that way anywhere else. Not mm-hmm. the way Zucar does it. We have. I always tell the people, oh, I wish that. Go back to in person. Like I do too, first of all, because in 
in-person trainings are the way they originally intended, but, mm-hmm. and you can speak to this, Phil, it, there is an energy to these online rooms for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and you add a lot to that because you're warm, you're friendly, you're attentive, and uh, very skilled at what you do as far as uh, hosting the Zoom meeting. I mean, we were on uh, Adobe Connect, and you saw my reference in the stay interviews of things that could be improved. Or <laughs> Did everyone, really, a lot of people said Adobe Connect? Was like, or was that, that just for me? That, that was just for you, but it was, it was beautiful. Um, it was tough. Actually, I think there were a few people that said it. And Adobe Connect was state-of-the-art. They just didn't keep up with the demand. They had a tremendous opportunity. I think I can speak for all of us Mm -hmm. at CCAR that we all liked it. We all, I mean, as far as delivering our trainings and, like, how robust it was, I don't think even Zoom compares to it. But it was just the connectivity, really. I mean, what good can we do if I can't? If you can't be on (laughs) it. Phil, we would train at 10 o'clock, day one. Yeah. I was in my office at 7 in the morning fielding phone calls. Well, you know, also that the first day, we'd also had the whole platform crash. But anyway, I think this, this like, talks a little bit about almost a recovery principle that we model here at CCAR is that we are willing to make a change, you know, to make a change and move on and try something new and stretch ourselves and see if it works. And, uh uh, what you said so far to hear about not having the voice to be heard and, and Stacy saying, well, Travis, it's really Travis's and he's convinced that Zoom will work. And we're like, okay. Yeah, that was crazy. Mm-hmm. That was crazy for me. I was, I remember like talking to Stacy and being like, this, this isn't going to work. Like it's, we're going to, we're going to work way harder than we need to work and we're going to mm-hmm. be stressed and it's going to be terrible. And instead of, like, I mean, she pushed back a little because that's her job. That's what she should do. Mm -hmm. She was just like, okay, well, let's give it a shot. And she was on with me the following Monday in Zoom doing ethics. Mm -hmm. Like, her and I learned it that morning, I think. (laughs) And we just did, and it was great. I mean, you can speak to it, Phil. I think you came in, like, the next day, or Mm -hmm. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was, like, night and day. We could hear people. There wasn't any weird feedback. There wasn't any... Anything in the way of us delivering a training besides distance, physical distance, really? Well, I think we, we early on saw your commitment and passion to the work and to recovery. And why wouldn't we trust you? I mean, I, I think our, our philosophy is we trust people till they give us a reason not to. And... And a lot of people are like, you have to earn my trust. Uh, I don't I don't buy that. It's like the I old th- way. I don't think you that know? works well in life. We, I t- we, we actually interviewed you. We hired you. We believed in you. So why would I all of a sudden say, you have to earn my trust now? No, you already have. We trust you until you give us a reason not to. And I think people thrive under that. I mean, I, I can speak to, I, I feel, I feel like I've been thriving, not just like as a CCAR employee, but like as a human. So I've come here, like, not only am I doing this training and loving that, like I'm also given a space to be creative. Uh, I couldn't apply to be a graphic designer here, but guess what I learned how to do while working at CCAR? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I basically taught myself and Lila and I do all the graphic design for, mm-hmm. for CCAR training now. And it's, it's mm-hmm. just been, I need that creative muscle. That's mm-hmm. what we talked about. 
I just really appreciate you guys for giving me that space because I've never had that before. Definitely not in a job. <laughs> you know, I've always had to fight for that space. Well, I think it's really important that people like you who may not have a substance use disorder mm-hmm. just talk about mental health challenges and that, you know, there are ways to navigate them and to get mm-hmm. help for them Definitely. and have a good life because the trajectory of people who are identifying is just on the uptick. And some of that pandemic, some of that almost, I feel like it's just this season in the world to take a look and get mm-hmm. ourselves mm-hmm. well, um, generational stuff and all kinds of stuff. Right. I mean, and it's important because the way we frame it as an organization is recovery is for everyone. And I really, truly believe that. Mm-hmm. You don't, again, you don't have to have substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the world we live in, it's pretty difficult to be okay on a daily basis. I mean, go on your Twitter feed and mm-hmm. look at the news a little bit. No, I mean, that'll, it, I do the same thing. I have to take, take space away. But, you know, I think the more we tell our stories and the more we even do this, the more people are going to hear about recovery. And it's just, it's a gift of love that just keeps giving to people. And it, again, I'm just proud to be here and do it every day. So and two more things. Okay. I think I want to ask you one question about the future of recovery coach training in Ooh. digital, because you've heard some of my visions and aspirations. So I want to hear what you're thinking about the potential here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's obviously growing to say the least, right? Mm-hmm. And my job is basically just to make sure we get there. I mean, I, I'm with you, Phil, and seeing a 500 person training one day, mm-hmm. you know, and having now we have this group of in-house facilitators who are so talented mm-hmm. that I'm teaching now. I took a bunch of them through Zoom this past week and like all the features. So now they're going to be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. And now we have this movement of folks just taking us into the, I don't know the word, taking us into the sunset maybe? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I think we're positioned to grow exponentially. It's just a matter of us getting the people into trainings and mm-hmm. keep doing what we're doing. And you believe in coaching and you believe in recovery. And you I are do. a recovery coach and you are a, an RCP. Did you ever think that would come, no, see that coming? I didn't know what it was two years ago. <laughs> I, uh, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud of that. And I'm proud that I get to model coaching to because mm-hmm. that that's the important piece we get you know day four can be tough in RCA mm-hmm. right and the thing that, well not for you Phil <laughs> I the thing I like to tell folks is you know we're not trying to change your personal views or anything like that we're just here to model coaching and mm-hmm. show you ways that are proven to be effective in these recover recovery coach recovery roles mm-hmm. essentially and again I think we're we're in good hands. I think my hands are good hands in this role, right? All right. Poem. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. You want to hear one, right, Sandy? I do. Right. You have one in mind? Yeah, I think so. Let me just give me a second. I'm actually, I'm going to pull it right from my Instagram. What do you see as the coach, the future of like digital training and digital, because that was your field for so long? 
So unity is the first word that Mm. pops up, right? Mm -hmm. There is so much that separates us, separates our local community, our nation, national community. It separates the global community. And I just think about even the experience that our son had going to the Recovery Coach Academy in December and being exposed to people from the United Kingdom, from Ireland, from Turkey. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, we, we don't always need the the global initiative, right? And I'm learning a lot um, as I pursue my master's in social work that there's a trickle-down approach to things and there's a an approach that um, a speaker shared that was effervescent. So, you know, the alcoholic in me thinks champagne immediately. But if you think about effervescent, like starting at, at the bottom and, and allowing it to effervesce up, and mm-hmm. it's like and it exceeds. sounds more appealing than being trickled down to, right? Way more appealing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, it reminds me of planting seeds. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. That's what coaches do. All right, so I got one. I got one ready. Great. All right, I got to read my own handwriting here, so this is going to be tough. Okay, so it's called Let Yourself Be Huge. Mm. Tell me what you see, my friend. Better yet, tell me how it makes you feel. Take me under through the running of pins and the flickering of pressure in the depths of your five senses. Tell me all the different ways you get yourself lost on your way to the stage to the end of your world as far as you can see it. Now tell me, too, what it looks like just after. Better yet, tell me how it makes you feel to be still left standing at the end of your little history's ending, standing so tall. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Travis. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters Podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at ccar, the number four, recovery. And on Instagram at Recovery Matters Podcast. And you can use the hashtag RecoveryFirst to show support for our mission. Have questions, comments, feedback? Email us at podcast at ccar.us. Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.